Hi there, this is Vijay Damoji Prapu, and you're listening to the B2B Go-To-Market Leaders Podcast. The show where I go behind the scenes with top go-to-market practitioners to discuss their mindset and tactics. Hello there. Thank you for continuing to be an avid listener of the B2B Go-To-Market Leaders podcast, or if you're here listening for the first time, welcome. So here we are today. I have the pleasure of meeting and talking with Karen Steele. And Karen has a very storied career. She's worked at really big brands, including Apple, prior to that Next Computers, for those of you who recall that brand. And then she's been with Marketo. She's been at VMware and several others. So without any stop or let's just get into details. Super thrilled to have you on the show, Karen. Welcome. Thank you. I'm really thrilled to be here and I'm pleased to meet you and think highly of the podcast. So I'm delighted to be a guest. Fantastic. So you've had a very storied and checkered career and you've worked at really large companies, you've worked at young companies, big brands and so on. So my question to you and with all the guests, as always, is how do you view and define go-to-market? It's a great question and a great icebreaker opener because I think it's the crux of, as a pure B2B tech marketer, and that's what I am, go-to-market has evolved over the years. But I think the heart of go-to-market, it's about how you generate revenue through whatever channels you generate revenue through with a great product that has product market fit and ultimately create a great customer experience. So as my career matured over the years, for a long time in the beginning of my career, go-to-market was very, very siloed. Sales did sales, marketing did marketing. We didn't even have this notion until we got into the SaaS world of customer success, but customer support and things like that were often siloed. And product was often siloed as well. So the way I define go-to-market today, every aspect of go-to-market is it's sort of a four-legged stool, if you will, with a pretty important foundational underpinning. I'll describe the four legs first. So sales has to have a seat at the go-to-market table, and that could include business development or, or partners, not just direct. Marketing obviously needs to have a seat at that table. Product needs to have a seat at that table. And then customer success. Those are sort of the four linchpins. But the thing, the glue, the foundational piece that in my mind makes go-to-market successful is something a lot of companies call revenue operations. So it's all of the people and process and technologies and data that bring all those things together to be able to generate the strategy and execute all the different motions, whether it be a channel play, an ABM play, whether it be a, a freemium product, a product-led growth kind of strategy, whether you're marketing to SMB or to mid-market, you might have different plays, different products, different pricing. That team, which is so critical in today's fast growth company, is the most critical thing. So sales, marketing, customer success, product with the underpinning of, of revenue operations. 
Wow. I think that's the most complete definition I've heard so far. And why I say that, Karen, is for two reasons. One is when I ask this question with many of the guests, they typically cover two or even three functions. It's sales for sure, marketing, and then support slash success. Somehow they omit the product piece. So you are one of the few guests who have, who has called out product as one of the center pieces of go-to-market. That's one. And the second is you also highlighted the importance of revenue ops. Now, granted, there was marketing ops, there was sales ops before over the last 10, 15, 20 years, but over the last three to four years or so, revenue ops as a function has taken more and more the center stage and, and the visibility for obvious reasons. Because if you're looking to tie all these four functions you need something, an organization or team that's sitting outside of each of these functions. Right. And is held accountable. If you think about the amount of investments companies make in technology across everything I just talked about, sales, marketing, CX, product, somebody has to pull and consolidate all those systems together so you get one single version of the truth. You know, I think the toughest job for revenue ops leader today is still living in a world of silos because not every company has adopted bringing all of those operational people into a single team. So they may still operate in different places in the organization. But if there's a strategy and philosophy around revenue ops, and there's a single version of the truth, then I think you have a lot of efficiency. And I've been a huge proponent of, of revenue ops for quite some time. Fantastic. So a good segue into this, Karen, obviously, you've gained a lot of wisdom, a lot of insights over the years. Can you tell and share your story? Like, where did you start in your career after schooling, undergrad or college? And then what led you to who you are today? Yeah, so I started my career at Apple in the early days. And when I say the early days, not the Apple that you know today. Apple was a hardware company. They were a computer company for a very long time and became a multi-billion dollar company building computers. I think today when we think about Apple, we think about these devices and they're more like a consumer electronics brand. I joined Apple while I was in school and went to school through my career at Apple. And I started in the kind of the marketing communications in-house agency side at Apple. And Apple, I think, was one of the few companies at the time that had an in-house agency that really cared about brand and messaging and being close to the customer and obviously sold to a lot of different audiences at the time. And so I learned a lot in the first eight years that I was at Apple. And it definitely was the backbone of forming who who I became as a marketer because that's sort of where I f- fell in love with marketing and the creative process and having an impact on the customer experience. In many ways, I feel that Apple sort of invented technology marketing because this is the 1980s. And in the 1980s, people weren't really marketing technology and computers, but Apple was trying to make the world a better place with technology. And that's really what they have done over the decades and decades since. Yeah, talking about Apple, clearly that one ad comes to my mind and it sticks in everyone's mind, whoever has been following technology marketing. 1984, yeah. But they did some other very brilliant advertising and things over the years. I did two tours of duty at Apple. So I was at Apple for the first eight years. 
And again, mostly on the kind of in-house agency, marketing, communications, advertising side. And then I went to Next, which you mentioned, which for those who don't know, is the company Steve Jobs founded after he was sort of forced out of Apple. Brilliant technology later became, it was a software and a hardware platform, but really the crown jewels were the software and they later became the Apple OS that we know and love today because Apple bought Next much later down the road. Had an amazing career at Next, got to work with Steve Jobs directly for about five years. He was effectively the CEO and the CMO because Steve is a marketer at heart. And so that's where a lot of my foundational learning and and things came from. After I left Next, I did go back to Apple. There was a really interesting role. I went back at a time that Apple was a kind of a little bit schizophrenic. They had invested in a lot of different categories of technology, but it was a kind of a plum job. I went back to run consumer brand and advertising for what was then a product called the Performa, which was kind of an all-in-one software and hardware solution that was designed for families with children. And uh, and so that was a super fun run. We were still selling. And was this around the time when John Scully was running Apple or did Steve Jobs? And John was on his way out. Michael Spindler had already become the CEO at this time when I returned. And then gentlemen from the chip industry, Gil Emilio actually came in, which you could argue that was good or bad, but it was not before Steve eventually, Steve Jobs eventually came back and and turned Apple into what I think most of us know and love today. So, you know, that was a number of years early, early in my career, but it probably still sticks with me as the most formative. I worked with some of the best and the brightest and obviously very advanced technology, both Apple and Next. Because I was young and because Apple was a lot smaller, I mean, when I started, I think I was employee number 2000 at Apple. So I got a lot of opportunity to learn. I became a manager of people at age 23 because Apple fostered that kind of growth and helped put people through school and and encouraged people to to work and and you know get their degrees at the same time etc so very foundational for my career and then this wonderful thing called the web the world wide web was starting to take off and i got introduced to some newer technologies where people were this was sort of the netscape era i would call it where people were starting to build really cool applications that you could access through web browsers so That's when I went to my first couple of startups. So I've had the good fortune of pure tech. My whole career is pure tech. I've worked for large, iconic brands. I've worked for small brands, some you wouldn't have heard of. Early stage startups. I've worked for medium-sized company. I've done both public and private. So it's been kind of a fascinating ride. The second half of my career has been certainly since about 2000. Six very early days of SaaS has been all SaaS software solutions. So I've done a lot in the, you mentioned VMware. I was also at a company called Informatica. So I've done a lot in the sort of data and analytics world, but I've done a ton in sales and marketing tech as well, which I really enjoy. So yeah, I mean, the brands that stand out, especially in the sales tech and MarTech is exactly Corp. I'm not sure if Saba software falls in that or not, but then clearly Market is another one that falls in that. Lean Data clearly falls in that. Sendroso for sure. Yeah, no, Saba was an interesting one. Their roots were in e-learning. 
but they were trying to break through in at the time, which was really hot talent management. So this was the days of success factors and Taleo and a couple of the the really innovative companies that got bought up by some of the the larger enterprise brands today, but they were definitely, you know, more selling to to HR and but super good tech and great experience there as well. Very cool. Very impressive. Now, before we move off this topic, obviously, and I clearly won't have and don't have many guests who had the fortune of working with Steve Jobs and the team. So a question to you, Karen, is any anecdotes or stories working with Steve Jobs that come to mind and you want to share with the listeners? Yeah, just one of the most passionate, brightest Honestly, I'd call him a marketing genius. Of course, people have heard and read stories about how demanding and difficult he he was and, and could be. Somehow I made my way into his circle of trust. I think I proved myself early. I had at least one boss that was sort of a buffer initially, which I think helped him earn respect for me with without me having to deal with him every single day on a daily basis. But eventually... You know, we just built a really, really strong rapport, but he was involved in every aspect of marketing and the marketing experience that he was involved in every aspect of product design and the product experience and aesthetics, which for anybody that remembers what the next machines looked like, they were beautiful, slick, black magnesium workstations and with really the best software Next grew up really helping corporations and including the government build really sophisticated, custom-developed applications. And that was really what they did best. And then, of course, those applications got displayed on these beautiful monitors that were had all the latest advancements, pixelless technology, etc. It was just absolutely a beautiful product experience. Yeah, pretty cool. And then obviously, when you're trying to come with a new creative design or a campaign, you must have had a lot of interactions or input from Steve Jobs himself, I would assume. A hundred percent. He was involved in everything from product packaging to advertising campaigns, product naming to messaging, absolutely everything. But generally, I would say he gave me enough autonomy that I never felt suffocated. I could get my job done. And the buck sort of stopped with him. He was, for all intents and purposes, the CEO, but at the same time, he behaved like a CMO every day. Pretty cool. By the way, I didn't intend to ask this question, but now that you have this unique experience, so my question to you is, what made you break into that circle of trust with the great Steve Jobs? I think, again, I think it helped that I had a strong leader who respected me a lot that was initially a buffer. So that gave me a little bit of time to prove myself in the background and not just be thrown in front of Steve for him to judge me. I think knowing his personality and knowing how opinionated and smart he was and knowing what he cared about. I listened a lot before I spoke. I certainly had opinions and I voiced opinions when I believed that I had a strong point of view and and he would listen thoughtfully. And of course, he'd tell me if he didn't agree with me, but often we got to a common place. So I think it was a combination of initially having a buffer where I wasn't just thrown to the wolves, so to speak, because some people didn't have that luxury. They just 
immediately were a direct report to him and there was no buffer in between. I think I was fortunate to have a guy Steve respected a lot for the first year. And in that time frame, I think he learned a lot about me and my style. And then we just spent a lot of time together and I knew what worked and what didn't. And I knew what I could put in front of him, what I couldn't put in front of him. And I did challenge things that I didn't agree with. I didn't always win every argument, but I think I was level-headed and it always came back to, we've got to do what's right for the business and for the customer. And I think through most of my journey there, that's what we did. So switching gears on a lighter note, how do your family members describe what you do for a living or what you've been doing and what you did for a living? Well, it's funny you ask that question. So when I was working at Next, I had just bought a house and it was being remodeled. And so I moved in with my dad for about three months because my home was being remodeled. And this is before we had cell phones. And so I had to make sure that Steve's admin had my updated phone number if he needed to reach me in the evening, which was frequently. I happened to still be at at the office this particular evening. So he called what was my dad's house at the time. And I think my dad generally knew I was in marketing and sort of what I did. But when Steve Jobs called the house and my dad ended up speaking to him for 20 minutes, I think he learned a lot about what I did because Steve told my dad how much he trusted me and relied on me and what a hard worker I was. And I could have had nobody explain it better to my family than it coming, I guess, directly from him. But it's hard to describe to the general lay person who's not A technology marketer, maybe it's different in B2C, where you say, I work for Clorox, I'm a brand manager, right? I think in in B2B tech, you talk about, well, we help create pipeline and we promote our products and try and create customer affinity and customer loyalty and build retention. You know, you get into language that if you're not a tech person, a tech marketer, I think it's hard to understand. But I think from the beginning, everybody knew that I kind of came from the communications world. I was a marketer. And I think generally speaking, because a lot of my other family members were in tech too, that, that people understand. So if I'm at a a cocktail party with a bunch of non-tech people and somebody asks what I do, I just keep it very baseline and say, I'm in marketing at a software company. And don't go much further than that because it's obviously got a lot more legs than that. But it's hard for people to kind of grasp what we do, do every day. Very cool. I mean, great story. I would imagine your father must have felt really proud. Oh, he went to the golf course the next day and bragged all day long that he'd had a conversation with Steve Jobs, that Steve had called the house. And to the point where my sisters were all rolling their eyes, like he cannot keep telling the story. Like, this is ridiculous. I mean, (laughs) I think it was kind of special for him. So... Excellent. So switching gears again, back to your role. I know until recently, you were leading marketing and the chief marketing officer at Sendoso. So broadly speaking, I don't think it makes sense for us to get into the Sendoso piece yet. But obviously, you've done a whole lot of other stints and roles. So if you were to go back maybe one, two or three years, can you share a GTM success story? Like what does success? First of all, how do you define a GTM success? And what are the key ingredients that led to the success story of yours? Yeah. So, and I think this is true at Sendoso as well. I mean, the 
the first question you asked me about defining what is successful go to market and what does it mean? You know, we had, there's great people at Sendoso and we had an awesome VP of RevOps. Not every company you walk into has that. So fantastic, you know, leader in RevOps, fantastic head of sales, fantastic head of customer success and and product, and then with myself. So I initiated, which wasn't to say some of these people weren't meeting on and off, but it wasn't a weekly kind of strategy meeting. So I did what we called a core go-to-market leadership meeting for that team of five, those key functions that I mentioned at the beginning. And we we talked strategy and we talked if there were people issues in terms of gaps where we were running into barriers or what have you. It wasn't an execution conversation. We didn't sit in a room and talk about what's the forecast and how we're going to launch this product. Definitely different places we did that. We talked more about strategy of how are we going to hit the number this quarter and what is that and and how are we going to hit our net retention goal and what kind of data do we need to share at an executive team level so people understand the scale and growth of the business because we were at the same time bringing on a whole new enterprise selling team so when you're onboarding a selling team and it takes time to ramp people you have different things going on and the selling isn't moving as quickly so we talk more strategy of how to scale and move the business forward. And then if we did get into other conversations, we did launch a PLG, a product-led growth freemium product when I first joined Sendoso. And we did talk about what was the strategy because we didn't want that to cannibalize existing sales as a free product. And so those were some of the conversations that we had. And and I think what it led to in terms of the question you asked is, it led to, we didn't have these broken silos. We all sort of knew what all the key priorities for each of our teams were. We didn't have to go to a quarterly QBR to learn that because we had these weekly meetings. And then we had these pipeline meetings and forecast meetings that you got more into the details, but we had already outlined the strategy. And so I think what what we did as a team is, is sort of architected that strategy, knew enough about what might come up in a forecasting call or a pipeline call as we were going through numbers and getting more specific about how certain programs were affecting certain things or certain gaps in personnel were affecting certain things. But we'd already talked about those in advance. And so I think that's really critical for a go-to-market team to have that kind of synergy and openness and transparency so that you can go into The tougher meetings, frankly, where other executives are involved, you're doing the weekly forecast, you're doing the weekly pipeline updates, and you're doing your QBRs for the business segments, etc. Now, did you have these meetings with the RevOps weekly? It sounded like that. Weekly. Okay, got it. It's RevOps and who were the team members? So it was you, the RevOps leader. Yeah, myself, the RevOps leader, EVP of sales, chief product officer, and the VP, SVP of customer success. You are actually putting that GTM definition into practice. on Every single week. Amazing. And I want to say that we did that at Lean Data as well. We probably did not include product as well as we should have, but we sat with sales, marketing, and customer success 
and a version of RevOps, even though Lean Data talked a lot about RevOps. They do have a very strong RevOps leader now, but at the time we still had a strong sales ops person and I had a marketing ops person and they weren't necessarily in the room because those were more the second level meetings. But we it was still philosophically very similar, but I don't think product was as involved as it could have and should have been. And for you as a CMO going into these strategy meetings with the cross-functional leaders, like how did you prepare for these meetings going into the meeting? Like, did you have like a template? It was fairly open. I would ask people, I was the meeting sort of leader, I suppose. I set up the meetings and I would ask people if there were particular agenda items. If there weren't, I'd come into the meeting with a list of things I thought we should talk about. And then that would usually generate other discussion and other topics that other people, there were either an offspring of one of those topics or something very different. I wouldn't say they were templatized or always had an agenda, but the objective was let's come to the table once a week. Let's put any issues on the table, strategy issues around what are our go-to-market challenges, issues, if we're about to launch a new motion, like the premium that I mentioned, what might our issues be with that? Pricing might come up in some of these meetings. Competitive would come up in some of these meetings. But it was more at that level, which helped inform, as I said, a bunch of other more executional meetings with some of the other team members. So Karen, that was fantastic. The practice that you did at Sendoso, where you had like a strategy meeting with all the key cross-functional leaders. And I'm sure you must have, that must have played a key role in your GTM success at Sendoso. Now, on the flip side, we all know that GTM is not always up and north and up and right and going up always. There'll be bumps and failure. So can you share a GTM failure story that comes to your mind? Yeah. So I think most of the GTM failure stories that you're going to ever hear are when all those things, even if they're siloed, they don't come together into one sort of leadership mode and you get the finger pointing. It's a sales problem. No, it's a marketing problem. No, it's a product problem. Now I'll go back a long ways. I mentioned that GTM has evolved over the years. I started my career in a world where sales was sales, marketing was marketing. You know, we didn't have the notion of customer success. Product lived in a different universe, oftentimes. And so, one, I'll tell an Apple story that I think is an interesting one, and I think it was a GTM failure that fortunately got corrected down the road. But I was lucky enough to be part of the launch of the first Macintosh, which which happened in 1984. And you mentioned that advertisement. I mean, it was a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. At that time, Apple sold mostly through the channels. So there were Apple resellers in the channels. So this was a huge channel business development, part of the go-to-market strategy. And we had this great idea, marketing promotion, to do something called Test Drive a Macintosh. And the idea was you could walk into any number of resellers and literally get a Mac for free, take it home and play with it over the weekend. And if you liked it, you could come back and buy it for a discounted price. No computer company had ever done anything like that. So I don't think they're even doing it today. No, it was a phenomenal idea at the time. So it was called Test Drive a Macintosh. I was part of the team that that launched that. I mean, 
everything from Apple is just famous for its packaging and a lot of its promotional stuff. If you went to a reseller, like you got this like driver's the black glove that was logoed than Apple. This is back when there was a six color logo, etc. Anyway, great idea in practice, but we launched this program right before the holidays, which is the busiest time of year for any reseller. So what happened is the resellers got inundated with fulfilling this promotion on behalf of Apple that they weren't going to make any money for that weekend right before the holidays. So it sort of bombed because the resellers were up in arms. And that was a classic case of our channel team, our marketing team, our product team, like weren't communicating well, the timing was off. So it bombed and it left a little bit of a black eye with with uh, the confidence with with the reseller channel. Like every failure that should be the case, you learn from it. And we picked up the pieces and we relaunched the same promotion months later in a much different season so that we weren't competing with holiday sales. And it turned out to be very successful. But classic case of GTM being very siloed, particularly on the channel side, where we just didn't have our ducks in a row. So that is definitely one that comes to mind. Wow, that's a fantastic story. I mean, nowadays, at least some of the leading brands and companies, what they do is they run or do like a pre-mortem versus a post-mortem and identify all the failure levers or failure points. So if back in those days, if there was this practice, this is one way we could have avoided, but clearly hindsight is 2020. We all know that. Yeah, for sure. Fantastic. So given your vast experience now, Karen, now what do you think or what are your one, two or three superpowers that really stand out? I mean, why do people reach out to you or go to market? And I think, again, some of this just goes back to the fabric of where I come from. And Apple gave me many of these gifts. I know how to build brands, brand strategy, messaging that is differentiated and matters and it's going to connect with the buyer. So I think a lot of people come to me because they know that ultimately I can help put your company on the map, make you look 10 times bigger than you are. If you have a messaging challenge, if you, in the case of Sendoso, and this was certainly not all my doing, but Sendoso is a fantastic product. And the reason I, I did a fractional gig with them is because I, I love the product. I was a, a customer three times. The first time I used the product and then subsequently thereafter, I mean, they didn't really have any strong competition. But then suddenly a couple few smart companies literally copied their playbook and started using the same messaging that Sendoso had used three years ago, was undercutting them on price. And so all of a sudden there was this huge differentiation challenge in terms of, of messaging and also being really clear on the category because corporate gifting is not an essential category, but direct marketing automation is. That is a channel that every company should think about just in the same way you think about ABM or you think about advertising or your website or, or anything else. You should really think about using, and, and direct marketing has been around for decades, as we all know, but now being able to do it in a personalized way with physical goods, 
that reach somebody immediately, the emotional connection to somebody opening up a package versus getting a piece of highly priced collateral in the mail is is very, very high. So I think in terms of superpowers, it's probably knowing how to brand and message a company super well, turning that into an amplification mode, whether that be through influencers, thought leadership, and not just the foresters and the gardeners of the world. I mean, you can do so much now in the B2B space with G2 and Trust Radius and, and using your customers as a leverage. So customer marketing is probably another superpower, whether it be building communities or using your customers for advisory and working with customer success teams for adoption strategies and co-owning with customer success a net retention number. Net retention should not only be owned by customer success. That is a company metric, but marketing plays a role in that too. So those would be some of the things I would mention. Yeah, pretty cool. I mean, just going back to your point, right? So the concept of gifting, even though it's very simple, not many companies and brands do that. So a few years back, when I was head of marketing, Series A startup back then, I received a mail, an envelope from Marketer. And it was from one of the SDRs or account managers from Marketo. And the envelope contained nothing major. It's just a serial bar, just a serial bar and a nice handwritten letter. That caught my attention. I still remember that quote-unquote gift to this day versus a collateral. Or an email. And if you think about like for a marketer like you in, in those days and any marketer out there that's listening to this, we're inundated. Like, and it's not just email today. It's all the stuff we get on LinkedIn. It's all the ads we see on Facebook and Instagram. And by the way, Facebook can personalize ads pretty well. And and we're just inundated and inundated. And if you can get something that can break through that clutter, the more personalized, the better. Or the more even just clever. Sendoso has so many great examples of customers that have done some really cool things, not to just open a door to get set a meeting, but something to make it super memorable that ties into what the person's all about. I know we're going to run out of time here, but I want to tell one quick story because this one is sort of near and dear to my heart. So I get inundated just like I described the rest of every marketer I know. And I occasionally get back when I was in an office, it's easy to ship a gift to me. You would get somebody's branded coffee travel mug. I need another travel coffee mug. Like I need, I don't know, I like a hole in my head. But when somebody takes the time to figure out who you are, not just as a target to them, but what your interests are, whether they're looking at, we're all on Zoom today, so it's harder, of course, but maybe you have a baseball or football or hockey poster on your back wall that might be some, you have an affinity for a particular team. I got a package and I rarely respond to stuff on LinkedIn, but whoever this SDR was, he just wrote a very thoughtful note. You know, I had to give him my home address for him to send me something. And I just thought, Let's just see how clever, creative this person is, because I liked what he wrote. And I put nothing personal on, and I've told this story many, many times, but I still think it resonates. I put nothing personal on LinkedIn, but I do have a Facebook page. This guy went and found me on Facebook, researched me on Facebook, realized I have two dogs and they have their own Facebook page. And so when I got a package delivered to my home, it was not even in my name. It was delivered to Louie and Henry. 
And inside there was a personalized card for my dogs that just said, please enjoy. And it was treats and toys and other little amenities for my dogs. And it's like, who wouldn't respond to that? <laughs> like you broke through to something that matters to me. But I think figuring out that emotional connection and particularly in an account-based marketing strategy, if you're trying to break through an account, learn that business. I was at another company where like tourism was one of our key targets. So selling to destination marketing organizations for cities and states that are trying to bring travelers to them. We just did a real cool custom package that included, you know, like an older framed map of let's just say it was state of Hawaii, one of the customers and like a little paperweight globe, you know, just something sort of fit into their, their market segment. So they knew like, okay, they know who they're marketing to. So taking the time to to do do those kinds of things, particularly now with all of the stuff we can do with intent data, knowing who you want to target and get doing ABM right and using intent signals you can do that really, really well, whether it's a physical package or even just a message to them. Pretty cool. A final question, I know you you need to hurry up right now. So final question to you, Karen, is if you were to turn back time, what advice would you give to your younger self on day one of your go-to-market journey? Yeah, just be bold and humble at the same time. And by that, I mean, don't be afraid to make mistakes. Know you will make mistakes and learn from those mistakes. But be bold. If you've got a big idea, put it out there. Don't wait for somebody to tell you it's okay to do it. And know that you're going to stumble and fall occasionally and just get back up on the horse and prove yourself better again. Because The only way to learn is from stumbling a little bit, and then you'll get better and better and better. So that's the advice I would give myself. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Karen. It was wonderful. And just listening to all those stories, I'm sure each of the listeners got a lot of insights and value. And yeah, we'll all put it to practice. Thank you once again, and best of luck in your journey. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Hi there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the B2B Go-To-Market Leaders Podcast. I have all of the show notes and a full transcript on strata.com. S-T-R-A-T-Y-V-E.com. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get a podcast. Leave a rating and a review. Your comments will help other go-to-market professionals find this podcast.